Again, we welcome everybody to the new Springville Jewish Center here in Staten Island and to the Nachum Siegel Network and the thousands of people listening across the globe. Our next speaker will be Rav Moshe Faskowitz, Roshiva Yeshiva Madrego Sa'odom. I'm going to begin Kina Mispa Memalef Shali Thrufa Boesh. This is a kina that everybody is familiar with, and it talks about the tragedy of all the Gemaras Talmud Bavli that were burned in the 1242 in Paris. Before I begin my comments, a few lines in the Kina, and we'll interpret them. So we ask all of those Helikis Svarim that were burned that they should seek Rachamim by Hashem Yisbarach, as we're Misabel. And we're the people that we yearn and we mourn the fact we have no Beis Amigdash and we want our Beis Amigdash. We're the ones who would be so willing to roll in the offer of Eretz Yisrael. It's so hard for us to believe and endure the pain of the fire and the burning and the destruction. And we walk in darkness and we, we look for light. So here he says, we, we cry and we groan and we, with a broken heart. It's interesting the different words they use to cry, to lament, to howl. Like serpents, ostriches. And there's declared eulogies in Hespedim in this long Golis. You know, there many ways to mourn, many ways to demonstrate mourning, ashes, kriya, sitting shiva, restricting activities, hespit, crying, different ways to mourn. And there are many ways of crying. There's sobbing softly, there's crying loudly, wailing, and also weeping silently. And all of these different aspects of availus and mourning depend upon circumstances. It's the circumstances that dictate the reaction. Generally, the focus of mourning 
is on great tragedies, frightening incidents, loss of life, loss of fortune, loss of health, loss of honor and pride, loss of freedoms, and sometimes the loss of holiness and sanctity. For those things you would expect a demonstrative and an external reaction, an, an external manifestation of mourning. Sometimes, though, there are incidents that might evoke a more internal, a less demonstrative type of, of mourning. Kidna 41 draws our attention to a chapter in our history that indeed it tears our collective hearts out and it stirs our emotions uniquely as Jewish people whose historic journeys have instilled us with an uncanny ability to sense when the lifeblood of our survival, because there's different kind of Nisyanis, but sometimes we can sense the lifeblood of our survival, Talmud Torah is being sucked out of our system. That's a very unique moment, a unique persecution, that's a unique tsar. In 1242, the infamous burning in Paris of the Talmud Bavli, that's what this kina speaks about. And from early medieval times, through the pre-Renaissance period, Jewish settlement in Europe slowly but surely became very, very firmly established. And it became established as a real extension of the post-Churban Golis. Many times during that period, Goyim, they tried in different ways, and always do, to eradicate the Yidin, to break, to destroy our people. We prevailed. We endured relentlessly. In the early 1200s, the church devised a new strategy. And they were recognizing that over the last 200 years, you know what had become established as that one item that kept the Jews powerful, that kept the Jews and gave them the ability to endure. And that was the Torah Shebaal Peh, the Gemara. The Torah Shebaal Peh had become the bedrock foundation of the Jewish faith. Especially now, over those couple hundred years of the Goinim and then the Rishonim, they established the dominance and the authoritative nature of Talmud Bavli over Yerushalmi. And, and this is really what kept Kehillahs together, that made Rabbanim, that made Botedinim, that made Roshe Kehillah. And the church said, you know what? Let's do something new. Let's burn all of the Gemaras. I'm not talking about the Sifri Torah. I'm not talking about the Klav. I'm not talking about killing the Eden. I'm not talking about assaulting the children and the assimilations. They said, let's take the Talmud Bavli and we'll burn the Talmud Bavli. Is it interesting? There's a whole history. I don't want to be marach. In 1242, which incidentally, I don't know, we all wonder from time to time, was this a direct oinish or a direct result of the fact that seven years before, Yidin themselves made a sreif of Halek Esforim and they took the Rambam's forum. And they took the Rambam's Mer and Nevuchim and they took the Rambam Yad Hazaka Deis and 
other Chalakim, and they burned the Rambam. Seven years later, Debishter says, Kindrach, now they're burning the whole Talmud Bavli. But the streets of Paris were filled with smoke. They went through home by home, and very hard in those days, every, it was no printing press. Everything was written by hand, all the all manuscripts. And they seized the church, seized them all. As I say, the fire spread, the smoke throughout Paris. French Jewry never, ever recovered, never again. And it diminished little by little from that. And here, the Maram Rutenberg, in this kina, records his words, his hespid. You know what? His weeping, or his crying, or his sobbing, his written lament of that episode. He was not happy, and he had to endure many years of persecution, which followed in, in Paris and in France. And his story is that 45 years later, he finally tried to leave France and, and to escape, and he was arrested by Emperor Rudolf, threw him into jail, and because he was such a godel, Maram Rutenberg was the Rebbe of the Rosh, such an Adam Godel that they were willing to pay an enormous amount of money as a ransom. And he refused to allow them to take and pay for him based upon the Mishnah, where it says we don't allow Goyim to take big ransoms because that will be habitual. It'll make them do it all the time. He refused. He died in jail. And on top of all of that, he wasn't brought to Kvuras Yisrael for another 14 years. 14 years later, there was a Gvir, a Yid, that paid the government then money to allow them to take his remains and bring it to Kvuras Yisrael. Sad saga of the Maramarutimurg. What I wonder is as follows. Picture for a moment, you're there. How were they standing? How were they mourning? Was it noisy or was it quiet? Was it a sobbing and a weeping morning? Or were they, were they howling as described in the kina? See, I, I know this. I, I know that if I would Khalila have to watch a yid tortured and gassed and shot a level of horror and hate that I can't comprehend. Men and women burned alive, children smashed to bits, families slaughtered indiscriminately. That would trigger wailing, that would trigger screaming, that would, in horror, were crying out loud, the tumult would be, would be, would be incredible. What I wonder is, again, that mourning, the mode of mourning for the observers in 1242, I submit that they probably were more subdued. That was a quiet, a silent, broken-hearted community swearing in their hearts loyalty to Hashem, despite the efforts of all the Goyim now to eviscerate the spiritual wellspring that was theirs, I think they were quiet and watching and quiet.
you know, sometimes silence is more appropriate. For example, when the Beis Amigdish was charev, was burning, was it loud, the morning in Shemayim, or was the Shemayim quiet? It was the morning in Shemayim quiet. Which was that? Were the angels weeping, howling? Was the Hespedim, did they, full of Bechi? Or maybe the Maybe, maybe it was quiet. There is a Psiktadur of Kahana. Psiktadur of Kahana says that Yerushalayim and Siyan came to the Rabbeinu Shalelem. And they said, I want to be Maspid, the Beis HaMikdash. And Siyan said, I want to be Maspid, the Beis HaMikdash. And Yerushalayim said to Hashem, if I be Maspid, the Beis HaMikdash, I have what to say and I'll move everyone's heart, and it'll make such a Rishim. And Siyan said to Hashem Yisbarach, if I will be Maspid Yerushalayim, I will moan and say nothing. And Hashem chose Siyan. Sometimes there's a silent pain and a silent mourning that is deeper and makes more roishim and has and, and has more reaction and, and the results are more meaningful. So I want to know how about today? What does Hashem want from us? He wants what we're doing, saying and relating incidents, mices, history, chazal. This is what he, and this is in many, many ways, me'or es or perhaps he's saying to us, no, this is a very good learning session. I want something else, I want weeping. I want to see everybody crying. I don't like that everybody sits like this and, 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 just, and just lays their ear to words of people who have prepared presentations. Is this really what the Ebeshto wants from us? Is this the, that's what I'm asking. Is this the kind of mourning that Hashem wants from us on Tisha B'Av? You know, the Chassam Seifer writes, big Hiddish, he says, just like on Pesach, there's a din, Chayev Odom, Lira says, Hatzmoy, Kiilu Hu Yotza Mimitzrayim. On Tishabov, there's a din of Chayev Odom, Lira says, Hatzmoy, Kiilu Hu Yotza Mirushalayim. And he has to close his eyes, and I'm paraphrasing, but he says these words. You have to see all the Shechitis, you have to see all the, the Gedoli Yisrael being killed, you have to see with your eye. This wool based kotshenu burning, you have to see it burning. You have to see the Yeladim Ketanim Shachtum. You have to see it in your eyes. And when you see it in your eyes, it will break your heart. And because it will break your heart, so then you will begin to cry. But, he says, make sure, some say writes, don't cry because in that door, in that door, they, they, they did things that brought this 
terrible, terrible gzair upon us, but cry because you are part of the extended Golis and you realize that you are actually laying flame and participating in the Churban Beis Amigdash. He says, why? Because we are an extension now in the Golis of the second Beis Amigdash. The second Beis Amigdash is still burning. Now the second Beis Amigdash could not be here. It should be already a third Beis Amigdash. Why is there not a third Beis Amigdash? says the Chazam Seifer, because of our inability to bring Mashiach because of all the flaws that we have. So it's us, we, that are making, we should cry because of our churban, he says. Ultimately, it's our, it's our churban that we should shed tears for. But it's hard to wrap your mind around something that happened so many years ago. The Gemara says that Rab Gamliel came to a, a, a city and he, he was sleeping at night and he heard wailing in a house. And in this house that he heard wailing, he found out that there was a woman that she had a ben yochid, and he was such a good boy and a special boy, and a remarkable young man that everyone admired him, and Hashem took him in a moment, he took his life. And this woman can't bear it, and she's crying. Rav Gamli listened, crying, and crying a long time. After a while, the crying and the crying, and then he began to cry. And then he began to cry, he thought of the Beis Hamikdash, and he thought of the Beis Hamikdash, he began to cry for the Beis Hamikdash. So everybody asked, did Rabbi Gamliel need first to cry for the lady, then to cry for the Beis Hamikdash? He cries for the Beis Hamikdash because he always does. The answer is very hard to wrap yourself around things of that magnitude. Good, wrap your, wrap, 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 your, wrap your mind around the Holocaust. Go cry for six million. You can't cry for six million because six million is not real. When you hear stories, like you say, go over the individual stories and the tragedies, that I could wrap my mind around. Oh, I could wrap my mind. I could cry. That makes me cry. Now I cry. Now I, could, now I can feel the pain and the suffering, the collective pain and suffering of everybody. We don't know how to mourn. Mourning is a kunst. Where to mourn, how to mourn, when to mourn. So... Nadi Yehuda, by the way, of all of the Paiskim, who was the really, I guess you might say, the Litvak of all the Litvaks of the Paiskim? Nadi Yehuda. He's the one, Miss Nagin, the Shem Yehud Kutshebrich. We know all the, we, we, you know that if you read in Nadi Yehuda, in the end of the first Chalik, there's a Hesped that was written by Reuven Fleckness, I think it was his, 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 his biggest Talmud. And he writes to Shloishim, he wrote these words, was the Hesped, and in the things he wants to he was so big, and we all know how great the Neide Behuda was, but did you know that the Neide Behuda, every single night, by Tikkun Chatzois, he would go in back of the basement, which there was a yar, he would go into the yar, and he would cry, Bechias Neuroyes. You know, I didn't expect, I expected it from more legendary people who are involved in reputations of the great Sitkis. His emphasis was that this, and nobody knew. People he used to go far, so nobody should hear. But Bechias Neuroyes he had on Churban Beis Amigdash. And he says that during the Bein Amtsorim period, the whole time he wouldn't eat anything that was bosser or, or dogim. He'd only eat something that's givuks and things grow. And in the nine days, he only, the whole nine days, he only ate lechem with, with salt and mayim. You think he felt the churm beis That's a level of mourning that all those years later he had to adopt. What is, I think in Bir Allah, not in Bir Allah, yeah, the Behetev. Behetev brings down that 
that in, in, in Kavones Arizal, it's written, that the Arizal, every day of the Beit Absorim, after Chatzois, he used to go out and, and do Bechias for a half hour. Look at the Behetev. What, what does that mean? He, he always, these Tzadikim always, they mourn the Churm, but you have to cry. The Ebeshtu wants tears, or the Beis Amigdash wants tears. It's the Beis Amigdash that wants the tears. It's the Torah that wants the tears. Meish Rabbeinu wanted tears. Something about tears. Everybody wants tears. When, when Meish Rabbeinu, he, he, he buried Miriam and Aaron, so he, he said, he said it was when, when, when Miriam passed away, Aaron and, and, and me, we mourned her. When Aaron passed away, I cried for Aaron. But now I have no siblings left. Me, Yifkelai, who's going to cry for me? He needed, he needed tears. Tears were poor neighbors who wants us to mourn. And he wants the tears of Bechi. So I want to know, how should we talk and mourn Beis HaMikdash? So as a frame of reference, I want to tell you that many years ago, I had a young man came to me from a community. He had a choice to go to two different yeshivas in Eretz Yisrael. You are both of the yeshivas. One yeshiva, extraordinary lomdim, big talmid chachomim, put out the best goinim, and, and is, let's call it the Harvard, if you will, of, of those Lomdeshi yeshivas. The other choice he had was to go to another yeshiva that didn't come even close to that standard, but also outstanding. But they had a wonderful part of their curriculum was Musser. Musser was a major part of their curriculum. Working tech on the menschlichkeit and the midst, which yeshiva should I go to? Where would I flourish? He asked me an honest question. Where would I flourish more? Everybody wants to go to become the biggest town, but in that atmosphere, how will I, what will, who will I become? What will I be? Where should I go? Perhaps, I know I seek levels of Talmud Torah that, 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 that are beyond, beyond my imagination. I would like to reach, to raise the bar as high as possible. But how much do I have to perhaps set that on the side in order to assure myself that I'm in an environment that will create a man, a different kind of person, maybe a person that has more feelings and understanding of human being itself as opposed to the ex which one would, which would, uh, sitting here, I can almost see in the look of some of your faces which one you chose while I was telling the story. But what does a Rebbe tell a Talmud? What do you tell a Talmud? It's a hard, hard question. I'll tell you a little bit later what I, what I said. But I want to tell you as follows. That we know that there were Bayes Rishon and Bayes Shani. There was a great distinction between Bayes Rishon and Bayes Shani. In Bayes Rishon, what was the Averis that they had in the Bayes Rishon? Avoidizora? Shvihadamim and Gile Arayis. Besides the other Averis that they bring down, it was Shabbos, they didn't do Shabbos, they were Mavatl Tidaka Shelbeis Rabbam, Kriyashma, a lot of things the Gemara says, but the Iker, the Gemara says, those are bad, yes? Those three are bad. How bad are those three? Bad or very bad? Very bad. What about Bayashani? Bayashani, we all know that the, re the reason that it was Chorev was because. 
Yeah, there were other pieces of Talmud, Chacham, and lo, lo, they were Mechiach uh, Zuezu. There were a lot of other things that they had, but the Gemara says the reason was, the reason was Sinas Chinam. Now, the Gemara says that the bias Shani was worse than the bias Rishon. Bias Rishon, Shinis Galo Avoinim, Nizgala Kitsam, how long did they have the Churban? 70 years. Bias Shani, how long did they have the, the Golis of Bias Shani? Still? More than 70 years. It was worse. The Bayashani is much worse than the Bayash Rishon. I, I don't get it. I told you the Bayash Rishon tells us it's because of Avoidazara Shvirazdom and Gilearias. I get Sidna's Chinam, I understand it. But is this is it worse? Is there a love? There is, what, the, 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 by the way, it's tricky, the love of Sinas Chinam. You should know it's only in your heart. If you hate somebody and you mistreat him or you tell him, I walk over, I want you to know I can't stand you. I hate you. You're my worst enemy. I don't want to see you for my life. If you do that, you know what Avera says to Chinuch Yoever? Loisikim, loisitoyer, v'haftolarecha kemoicha. It's bad enough, it's bad. But if you have in your heart and you don't tell him and you bear a grudge in your heart, that's like sister That's a different love. I'm gonna to read to you how bad that love is in a moment. But I want to know the sinas chinam that we talk about. Do you really believe that sinas chinam is worse than the three cardinal transgressions? Do you really believe that? Tell me the truth. You believe, and by the way, avoid the Zohar that they did was all the avoid the Zohar. It says, call our boyim, and the, and, and the Mepharshim say that they didn't leave one out. In 40 days, they spent to make sure each one was extinguished and worked, and all kinds. This is serious Averis. So I want to understand now. So I'll tell you what the answer to that is. Yesterday we read, Im you chatoechem, Im you chatoechem kashonim, if your Averis will be like Shonim, Chuta Shoni, red, then it'll become white when we, we give you when we give you kapara. But if it's red, not like Tolashadi, but if it's red like Toila, Toila is a worm, a red worm. Oh, red worm, when I'm gonna give you kapara, it's not gonna get white like Shelleg, it's gonna get like Semer. I'll tell you the word, the word semer. What is more white, shelleg or semer? What's more white? Shelleg. Shelleg is, is pure white. Semer, it has, if you know, you take the, from, from the wool, you'll see it has like a tint to it. It cannot be as clean. It can never be as clean. Says Rameer Simcha, says the Meshachachim as follows. It's like this. The Gemara says this passage that we read yesterday, the first part, that if it's going to be like, it's talking about the Beis Amigdash, and in the Beis Amigdash, on the day they threw the, 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 the Sor Lazozel over, and they looked to see the string that was red, what did it turn to? It turned to white, they got Kapora. In the first Beis Amigdash, it became white. In the second, the second one was taught in the second Beis Amigdash. Why in the first Beis Amigdash it turned white like Sheleg, and in the second Beis Amigdash it turned like Semer, not really white? It says like this. The, the difference is, when you have chutashoni, he says you got a red thread, you have a white thread that they, they make it red, they dye it. But the core is white and you made it red. 
Now, if you cleanse it, you take off the red, what do you have underneath? You have white. A toilet is different, he says. A toilet, the essence of, the, of that string, it's a red string to start with. It's like the bug, that it's the essence of red. The core is red. So even if it turns to white, but you're never going to make it, you, you're never going to get, make it in, entirely white. It's never going to be like Shelley. So he says, that was the difference. The first base Hamigdash, they did Averis. But when you do Averis and Abish, there's Mechaper, so the red can turn to white, and you can become Uma Shlema, and the Abish can look the other way. However, he says, when the core is rotten, no matter what you try, when the very core is rotten, then no matter what you do, you can never make it white again. And in the second base Hamigdash, yeah, they did Averis, but they did Sinas You know what Sinas means? The core is rotten. Sinas means that the lave is, 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 is tarnished. The heart of Klal Yisrael was destroyed with Sinas There was no more, there was no more internal Kedusha in Klal Yisrael. Now, how do I, how bad is that? I want to tell you what the Sinas does. Now I have to read you the Chinuch. The Chinuch writes as follows. I find the Chinuch. Sefer Chinuch. Oh. Reish Lamed Ches. Loilis Noisinus Halev. Your heart should not be filled with sinna. Shenem loisisnes achicha bilvavecha. Shoyer shabitzve yadua. We know. Kisinnes alev goiremes royes gedolois ben bneodam. You should know sinna causes terrible, terrible things between people. He says not sinna over it, and I'm skipping that. Vahavto lorecha kamoicha, but rather sin in the lave. That every person hates the other, he wants to destroy the other person. And you should know that the sinner that you have in your heart is the reason for all of the tsaris and all of the bad things that happen. Now listen to next words. If anybody has any sense in his head, he realizes that hatred that you have in your life is the worst mida of all of the midas that you possibly could have. It's the nimas shebenimeses, gaiver, kas, all the other nimas shebenimeses. That's how ugly it is. A culture of hatred destroys. Hatred, this is what the Meshachach was saying, eats up the heart. When, you know what happens when the heart is consumed with hatred? When, this is the problem. When there's hatred in the heart, you can't love. What is the aver and the mindset that allows Avas Yisrael? The lave. If your lave is consumed by sinner, you can no longer love. That's why sinner is so bad. Took away the ability to love Hashem. Avas Hashem. To love one's spouse to one, love one's children. Everything is affected when a person is consumed by hatred. His whole life becomes a different life. He's no longer the same human being. It's a different, it's a human being pechusa when you're consumed with hatred. That's what hatred does. It eats away at the very core. 
It destroys the person. We live today in a terrible, terrible age. In my whole life, I don't remember ever feeling the reverberations of hatred like I do today, a culture of hatred in the United States of America. So hatred, insane hatred, hatred that makes no sense, that has no seichel, hatred that doesn't, doesn't begin, begin to, to, to show us any logic. But the country is consumed. It's the country, we're in a dangerous place. It's a dangerous place, the country. So much hatred here. It's not kas. Don't misunderstand kas for hatred. This is, you know how I know it's, it's you know what kind of it is? Sineschinam, for no reason. How do we know it's no reason? I'll tell you, I saw an interview that they went to seven people in California and they asked six questions, they gave six quotes that Trump has made over a period of time and, and they asked these, the, all seven people and every single one of them to every single quote spewed hatred and more hatred. They said, you know, he said this, he said this, oh, I hate him in his hate, and I hate him in his hate. And they couldn't, they, they were, they, the spittle was flying from their mouths. They were saying so much hatred for every word that they told them. All seven of them, all, on all six questions, 42 times, hate, hate, hate. What he did, though, at the end of each one of them, he told them, by the way, I want to let you know, the six quotes I gave you were from Obama, not from uh, Trump. That's called hate. That's called consumed by hatred. When consumed by hatred, that's why Beisamigdrash is chorov. The Gemara says, Gemara tells us that the second, the second Beisamigdrash was chorov. You remember there's another reason why? The second Beisamigdrash was chorov because it says that Derech Hashar Yelchubo, that Lechorov Yerushalayim, El Hashemida Dineim Al Din Torah that everything they did, they did according to the rules of Torah. They didn't do lifni mishur sadin. So everybody has the cash, no. It says that the reason the Beis HaMikdash was chorev was because of sinas chinam, not because they didn't do lifni mishur sadin. The answer is like this. The lifni mishur sadin, what is, it doesn't mean lifni mishur sadin that if I make kiddush on three ounces, I should be machmer like the chazanish and make it on four ounces. That's not lifni mishur. Lifni mishur sadin means nevater, vitor that I'm mevater on things in my life. You know, people that too makpid, I'm makpid on my park, you take my parking space, you take my parking space, I'm never gonna be your friend again. I know people that they're angry at somebody who took his parking space at work, like if they would come into his house and he would break his break front. That's in the schinum, that's, that's beyond, it's going over. Well, you know what counters that? You know what counters in the schinum? Being mevater. If they would have been mevater, Hashem would have been mevater and sinuschinim. That's the only. What is mevater? So I must tell you this. This is an extraordinary story. It's happened to me. I was in, in Ben Gurion, and like many of you, were rushing late to the plane, and I'm online, and they're checking in, and I see an avreich. He's a bit older than me, and a little bit, and he stand. This is maybe 15 years ago. He's standing in the other line. And I'm getting closer, you know, you're looking at the clock, you're getting closer, closer, you want to make it. All of a sudden, I see a family with six children with 20 valise. They come in, and the father pushes him out of the way. It was a dati. I have to just say dati, no more. He pushed him out of the way. He goes in front of him. And he's looking like this, the fellow. He just, he just went in front of me. What, what, what did you do? And, and the wife says to the guy, he says, 
Are you crazy? You just jumped in front of him. How could you do such a thing? How is it possible to do such a thing? No, he starts yelling at his wife. He says, don't tell me what to do. We're, we're here with Lyme. And he goes in front. And I see this Avra standing there. Quiet. I got on to my place. I figured, I don't know if he's going to make it because there's six, seven kids. Sure enough, I'm sitting on the plane and I'm thanking Hashem. Do you ever sit on the plane, you get the extra seat? And then the last minute before they close the door, this Avraich comes on. Sits down next to me. I tell them, by the way, I want to tell you something. I have to go quickly, make the story shorter. He says, you know, I, I, I got to tell you, you're, you're a tremendous guy. I never seen anything like that. If it would be me, I would be telling, what are you doing? You know, it's, we're all like, I want to be on the plane. I miss my plane. You're Mavata. He looks at me and says, you think I was Mavata? This is not Mavata. I have no problem with Mavata my whole life. I say, why? He says, let me tell you why. His name is, is his real name, Shaul Avreich. He was a young man in Yerushalayim in Harnov. And one day, his house burned completely. He was a Norman, didn't have a penny to his name. He went to Rabbi Vadi Yosef. And he tells him, I'm the short, the short story. I need it's $50,000. Vadi Yosef, it's a lot of money. You can't buy $50,000. You can't buy Is it too much money? He said, yeah. She put semen. So he felt very bad. He said, I can't help him. Just then, somebody walks into Rabbi Vadi Yosef, a very big veer from Paris. And he says to him, you know what? He says, he says, I, my son has a bris, I want you to be sandak, it's in Tel Aviv. Ravavadya told him this 15 years, I don't go anymore to Tel Aviv, I don't go anywhere to bris because it's Talmud Torah, you know, it's, it takes too long. I don't do that anymore, I'm sorry. But I'll make a deal. This Avreich just asked me for $50,000. You give him a check, $50,000 for the dira, and guess what? I will come to that bris. Right away, the man writes out the check. He gives it to Ravavadi. Ravavadi gives it to, to Shoal Avreich. Shoal Avreich, he says, Rabbeinu. He says, I'm telling you, thank you very much. He says, he tells of the check, I don't want that. You think, he says, that I would be mevater at Talmud Torah from Rabbeinu and let you go to Tel Aviv on my cheshbon because I should have a dira. No, I don't want the check, I don't want the money. And, and Rabbi Vadya, you sit, you learn, and I'm not part of this. And sure enough, what happened is, he never was able, he sold the dira for peanuts. And those years, he went to a place called Bet Shemesh, where you could buy for cheap. His only tsar was that in Bet Shemesh, there was no Sephardi at that time, no real Sephardi shul. He's looking for shuls, a few Shabbosim. Now, this is the story. He walks on a Shabbos, just looking for the next minion he's going to. He sees an old Sardish guy. He walks over to him, he says, why, where are you walking, old man? He says, I'm looking, I'm going to a shul. Where, is it a Sephardi shul? The old man says, no, there's no Sephardi shul here. He says, it was a Sephardi. He says, oh, I wish there was a Sephardi shul. I get to talking, what's your name? He says, my name is Shaul Revach. Revach, where are you from? I'm from Meknes in Morocco. Meknes, I'm also from Meknes. You show, what was your father's name? Eliyahu. Your father was Eliyahu Meknes, can't be. He says, yeah. It was Eliyahu Revach, yeah. He says, wait a minute. Your, your father, I, your father was the grocer, yeah. He says, I don't believe this. And they're talking, what do you need? Tell me. The story is, he told him, whatever you need, I give you. Why? He says, let me tell you why I'm here. Forty years ago, there was a fire in my house that burned down. I didn't have the money to build up the house. Nobody in Meknes could give me the money. Your father lent me the money. I built a house, and I'm going to pay him over 20 years. 
Four years later, my family all goes to, to Eretz Yisrael. And they want me to come. I say, I can't come. I'm an old man. If I go to Israel, I have no parnosah. And I'll have no parnosah. And without parnosah, I'm never going to be able to pay him back. And the family went and left him. When the grocer heard, you stayed here because you want to work for more to pay me back, I'm a vater. I'm a vater. I'm a va but one thing I ask, you go meet your family. But what you should do in Eretz Yisrael, I ask you that every single time he gave him certain where his parents, you go to Mekayim Esagdoshim, you mispallel from me and my family in those places. I don't know all these years what happened. Now I see the son of, of Eliyahu, of Eliyahu Revach. You should know in the interim, I became an extraordinary gvir. Tell me what you want. Well, what he wanted was this. He said, I would like to make a shul, a Sephardic shul. He says, make it, Bet will make a big shul. He said, God brave. He says, you know what I would like. Now, I'll tell you why this is, how real this is. He said, I want a yeshiva. He said, I'll make you a yeshiva too. You have a yeshiva. I have so much money, I don't know what to do with my money. And he built him up, and he showed me the pictures. And I said, why are you on the plane? He's on his way to Panama now. He was making a girls' school too. And I have all the papers and everything. Why all this? So he looks at me, he says, you're wondering why I was mevater online. My family lives on mevater, Rabbi Isai. The second base on Migdish wouldn't have happened if the sinners kingdom would have been countered by being able to be mevater all the time. Mevater to your wife. Mevater to your husband. Mevater to your friends. Mevater to Rebbeim and Talmidim and back and forth. Vitur. Vitor is an extraordinary meter that got away from us. And the sinner, and there is sinner, sometimes in the hearts, you don't recognize it always because it's deep enough, but it corrodes, like the Meshachachma says, it corrodes. I have to stop. I can't keep on going. There's not enough time. I would want to really demonstrate how the corrosion of the heart, which doesn't allow the love to, 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 to prevail and to make us closer and to appreciate and to recognize each other's beauty, this is our churban today, like the Hassam Seifer says. This is the avoinus that extend the long gullus that we have. It's about communication. It's about being able to understand and to favor rather than to dislike and to find chesroinus in, in everybody else. I want to just, then we will read this kina. We have to read the kina. Mem Aleph. Oh, you're right. Okay. I'll tell you, I do have a few minutes, you know, I started later, so I get a few minutes later, a few minutes as well. That's the rules of FIFA. So, um, I, will, so I would say as follows, that, that that boy, I actually told him that he should go to Brisk. I told him he should go to the, to the yeshiva. He didn't listen to me. He didn't listen to me. He went to the other yeshiva, and he turned out to be such a glorious, glorious young man in everything, in Yerushalayim, and in Midas, and in learning, and he's a giant today, he's a Magichir in a yeshiva, he made the right decision, I may have made the wrong decision, but I will tell you. Two weeks ago, Friday, one of my Talmidim called me up, he had a shaila with one Rosh Hashiva, one of the Rosh Hashivas in Lakewood, uh, offered him that he could be his shamus for the next three weeks. Benazmanim, you could drive me, take me wherever I go, and it's an opportunity to be a shamus of an Odom Gol. You watch how he davens and watch how he talks to people, watch how he talks to Balabat and watch how he talks to watch how he talks. It's a, a, a tremendous lesson. I could be with this word. Or he said, there was a younger man who I, I know as well, perhaps a goin, 
He said that for three weeks, if I come with him to Hunter, he'll learn with me Bechavrusa. Should I learn Bechavrusa with this Goyen, or should I go with the Rosh Hashiv and learn how to be a mensch and learn how, to, which should he do? You know what, I, I didn't know what to do. I went up to my office in Yeshiva, I sat down, and I looked in front of my office, a picture of my father, Zechrein Levracha, and I remembered right then the story he told me 45 years ago, short story. He went, no, it's more than four, he went to Navarduk in 1933. Navarduk is the Musa Yeshiva, the, and he's going to Ram Yafin, he wants to learn Musa, he wants Musa. So he's on the way to the Yeshiva, and he looks on the train from Warsaw, he had to take a train, and he sees somebody recognized, Rabbi Leisha Yudel Finkel, the Yeshiva of the Mir. Mir was then the Harvard of all the yeshivas of the London. Calls over, he says, Shalom Aleichem Rebbe. And Rebbe Lezidu says, come sit down, a yeshiva bacher. Where are you going? I'm going to Bialystok to learn the Vardok. He says, oh, let's talk in learning, because Rebbe Lezidu was known, always spoke in learning with everybody. And he said, my father was a, a genius in learning. And after about a half hour, I said, oh, it was a, a machayat. Let me tell you something, young man. You're going to Navardok, that's good. But if you decide to go somewhere else, you should know you could come to Mir Yeshiva anytime you're accepted. He got off the plane, the, 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 the train in Bialystok. He said he thought to himself, wait a minute, maybe I get back on the, on, the, on the train, I go to Mir. Where do I want to go? Do I want to go somewhere and the learning, the learning is this high? Or I go, the reason I went here in the first place is because this is here where the curriculum will work on me and I'll become a mensch in a way that I admire the Midas and the curriculum of the Midas and I'll become a different person. And he says to me, he says, Moishe, he says, you know, I chose, I chose the Midas. I chose the Midas and that's, that, that, that's who I am. I picked up the phone, I called that guy, I said, go with the Rosh Hashiva. I know you'll have an opportunity to learn and maybe even jump a new plateau. But to be Mishamash, such a big Rosh Hashiva, and see his Midas, and learn from him, this is what brings back the Beis Amigdash. This is the Midas Teves Hashem Baruch wants from us. This is what builds already a Churban that we had. It changes from a Churban, it changes to palaces. It changes to, to, to happiness. It brings us everything that we're looking for. It all has to do with the core, like the Meshachachma says, the core and the Neshama of the person. So, Mem Aleph, Shali Srufa Voeish Lishloi Mavilayich, Hamisavim Shrim Hatzes Vulech. Very quickly. Echinus in the Beishagla to Kabyesh Vasa, my Nikhvizar. I take God in the look at the Jimmy Avenue. Oh, I Lisa Beish does as a touch of Kvelai as well now she had 
השתים אסלו וקולייך לא ידלים. יומתק בפי מדבש למסרבימה. לא יש מועד לכל סורם וזור ושורר אוי תדי בעדי וסורתי כי תלכי במוחו וצלי במחולייך יום לבובי באיזה צורך ליאוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהוהו
and they're all in the square. And why, why, when, when the Nazis are satisfied, all the children are there. Took all the children to one side, all the mothers to the other side, and in front of the children, they killed them all. All the women in Prussian were killed on an Arab Shabbos. Machine gunned on an Arab Shabbos. In front of my eyes, I saw my mother machine gun on Arab Shabbos. We're all wailing and screaming and yelling. What he did was, the Nazis in Machshimum, they took then all the children, and the few men that were there, they herded them into boxcars. It was a place where they had the box, and they're all in the boxcars, and the, the Bechias, they were children, main thing they were children, it was so loud, all of the Bechias, and everybody was crying. Did you see the blood that you The blood that you gossip. And while they're all crying and yelling in the boxcar, all of a sudden you hear, the young chazan from Shtot got everybody quiet and they were Mechabal Shabbos. He said, I'm a fry yid, but thus cannot a frum yid. He says something like this, can only, only a frum yid has the neshama, the soul, and the wherewithal to be able to bring up that faith in HaKadosh Baruch Hu in that worst moment in his life, they were Mechabal the Helika Shabbos. The other story that I want to share with you that I saw recently, there was a yid in Pittsburgh, his name was Sam Solomon. He changed his name to Salem. He wrote a book about his experiences in the Holocaust. And there's one, one incident that to me just dances right in front of my eyes. I can't take it out of my eyes. He was at the Warsaw Ghetto. I don't know how many days they were fighting. I think it was three weeks. The whole thing took a few weeks, not long. The last day, they all knew they were going to die. On that last day, there was no more we're going to hold out. They knew they were going to die. They all had, he writes in the book, an exit plan. His exit plan was he goes up to Hannah's apartment, and from Hannah's apartment, he jumps from one roof to Yankel's roof. He goes down the steps. When you go down the steps, there's a hole in the wall. The hole in the wall, you come into the Friedman compound, it's called, where the Friedmans live. There, there's a hole in the basement. If you don't, you can get into the sewer. And that was his exit. Everyone had a certain exit. And he's jumping, and he jumps from Chana, and he jumps to Yankov's house. Yankov's house, he goes down, goes through the hole into the Friedman compound, and he sees, as he goes through the Friedman house, sits a yid with a bekesha, his Shabbos clothing, at a table. With three kleine kidalach, wearing, you know, the Polish kapalach, the, the, the kapalach, they used to wear the Polish hats, the little... And they're all sitting around the table with the father, and they're learning hashor v'habor v'hamamer v'ahev. And he yells at him. And he said, Abduvid, we're, we're it's all over, we're going. And he says, I know, I know. And ich mit meine Kinder mir weisen wie mir gehen. He says, in mir will gehen yotze nishmoseinu. And that's what he said, v'hashor v'habor v'hamamer v'ahev. No more running. We'll stay here with our Sefer Torah, and we will die with our Sefer Torah HaKadosh. So in 19, and I can finish with this comment, and then we go right to the Kina. In 1986, I left Lakewood. I became a rabbi in Canarsi. I was on my way to Tashlich. And I'm walking to Tashlich, and I see an out the Yid. He comes over to me. He says, Rabbi Faskovich, saying Yiddish, it's only Yiddish. He says, you're the new rabbi. I want to tell you, my name is Nuspoim. That's all I remember, Nuspoim. All right, Nuspoim. I want to tell you who I am. I 
survived the Holocaust. He says, and now he was 50 years old when he left. He's now 91, almost 92 years old. Bergen-Belsen. He was, he was liberated from Bergen-Belsen. He says, the day I left, I, I got a hold of a machberes. And I wrote on the, on the cover, why do I live? And he says, every year since Bergen-Belsen, I make at least one entry into that book, why do I live? For example, he tells me there was a time he saw a car accident, and he ran, and there were two Kinderlach, and a mother, and he pulled them out, and, and he maybe saved their life. He says, he wrote down, that's why I live. Another time, he says, in 19, the 90s, Sharet Tzedek Hospital, I'll give you an example. They decided they're making a new Sharet Tzedek, and he was voted to be the Brooklyn representative to raise the money for the new Sharet Tzedek Hospital. Oh, there was such an... That's why I live. Maybe I live because of Sharet Tzedek. He wrote it. And he says, every year... You know, he says, he's walking with me now to Tashlech. He says, right after Rosh Hashanah, before Yom Kippur. He says, you know, I'm not making too many more entries. I can't, I'm not going to be able to make any more entries. But I do want to tell you one thing, and this is the only English word he probably used. He says, but you know what I did for this book? For the book, he said the way he said, I wrote an epilogue. That's how he said, an epilogue. I said, you wrote an epilogue to the book? Yeah, that I have already. And what is that? So I want you to, he says to me, I want you to know the epilogue. And this is where I conclude. He writes, I have a dream, and in the dream I see a yid with a long board, with a white beard, on a white donkey with a long shoifer. And he has a pouch in his hand. And he makes to me like with his finger, come, 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 come to me. And I come to him, and I, he gives me the pouch, open it up, I look inside, I see there's a ticket. And the ticket is to Warsaw, 1938. I can go back to Warsaw, 1938. And he said, I would think to myself, oh, if I could go back, what can I do to stop this, the, 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 the terror? Maybe I should go tell everybody how bad it's going to be. They're not going to believe me. Maybe, maybe I could go try assassinate Hitler. I can assassinate Hitler. What can I do? And then I realized to myself, wait a minute. I don't have to go back to Warsaw, 1938. This is Warsaw, 1938. In 1938, you know what I would tell them? Yidin, Sisbald Yom Kippur, I told you this is by Tashlev, Sisbald Yom Kippur. And Yom Kippur, you said, Slach, no lavoy no yom azeh kegoyil chazdecho. V'chashen oso salom azeh misraim vadheino. And what did we say afterwards? V'yem Hashem, Salach tikit varecha. Hashem ot nij gizok Salach tikit varecha. Yidin and Warsaw, God did not say Salach You didn't daven good enough. You didn't pray good enough. You didn't make shalom good enough. You didn't learn good enough. It was no salach tikidvarecho. And now I stand here at the end of my life. That's my epilogue. This is why I lived. So I should be able to say, an old man should be able to tell the young people, Hevre, don't be complacent. You spoke about complacency. Don't be complacent. You think that you're going to dive in Islach no love. Go, young kipper, say Islach no love. You think it's so easy, Hashem should say salach tikidvarecho? In Eretz Yisrael, there's no sinas chinam in Eretz Yisrael. We love Eretz Yisrael. Everybody's so in love with each other in Eretz Yisrael. A halbet we have in the Golis. 
We have all different kind of factions, but we're getting a little better at that. We're getting mixing. We mix better a little bit than before. In Eretz Yisrael, Yumiki is super. Not just Chilonim and Datiim. Datiim and Datiim and Charedim and what? 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 Don't, don't, don't assume. This is the cry and call and the wailing in the morning. If you remember a Beis and you really believe it was a Churban, and you know there were reasons for the Churban, and you let it touch your heart, you begin to realize that it's the sinner that has to be removed so the love could come in. And when the love comes into heart, then it's Aves Hashem, and it's Aves Yisroel, and Aves Abrius. And that is what will bring Mashiach Tzidkenu. Let us say that last kinah that Rabbi Schwab wrote. You have that in your, which, which ice is it? 386, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, thank you. We thank the uh, three speakers that explained to us Kinnis. Right after we finish 
Elit Sion and the Davening, we will have two more speeches on thoughts about Tishabov, Mayor Simcha Siegel, and Rabaran Raps. At this time, we call upon Nachum Siegel. Everyone should rise. He will lead us in Elit Sion on page 390. 390. I want to thank Rabbi Siegel and the New Springville Jewish Center and all of our speakers for this unique and inspiring program. Wishing everybody an easy and meaningful fast. Uh, there are those who recite Elitzion responsibly, others who chant it together. I'm going to invite everybody to chant it, in fact, together. Elitzion v'yoreha, k'mo isha v'tzireha, v'chivisuvo ha'gurasak, al-bal niyureha. Share of 
Our next two speakers are coming up after the completion of davening, which will take a couple of minutes. Thank <laughs> you. 
second part of our program, two speeches on the thoughts about Tisha B'Av. Probably during the middle of the uh, first speech by Mayor Simcha, we will reach Chatzois at 102. If you do get up from the floor and sit on a chair, please, I ask you to do it quietly. We will now hear from Mayor Simcha Siegel, who will be speaking, dedicating his words to the memory of his grandfather, my late father-in-law, of Moshe Weisberger, Zal, very special person, and we now call upon Mayor Simchasi. The Pasik in Eicha tells us, he proclaimed a meeting against me to crush my young men. In its simple meaning, the Pasik refers to the appointed time 
of the invading armies which converged on the land of Israel at the time of the destruction. However, on another level of interpretation, our sages understand the term mayid to mean festival. As we find, the Torah uses the word mayid, referring to the festivals we celebrate throughout the year, Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot. Chazal even ruled that Tachnon is not to be said on Tisha B'av, just as it is not recited on our Yom Tovim, the festivals, and certain other days of celebration throughout the Jewish calendar. How is it that Tisha B'av, our primary day of mourning and sadness, can possibly be viewed as a Mayud? It has been suggested that the title Mayud is due to the small glimmer of light which shines amidst this day of darkness to somewhat counteract the mourning and sadness of the day. As the Svarim tell us that on Tisha B'av, Moshiach, our ultimate Redeemer, is born. That although, although the day is a day of sadness, that small light is enough to bestow upon it the title Mayid. However, Moshe Shapiro in the Sefer Afike Mayim has a different view and explains that the shame mayid has to be due to the identity of the day itself, the destruction and the mourning of the day of Tisha B'av. As a proof, he explains that when the ninth of Av is on Shabbos, like we have this year, the fast is pushed off until Sunday, the tenth of Av. If the reason it's called mayid is due to the fact that Moshiach is born on the ninth of Av, so then the aspect of Mayid, festival, can still be celebrated, whatever celebration that would be, can still be had on the ninth day of Av, because it's Shabbos. But yet, still, we're standing here Sunday, and we still don't say Tachnon. It must be that this day we don't say Tachnon, which is because of the Mayid, is intertwined with the day of Tisha B'Av itself, with the mourning, the sadness, the destruction of the day. The word Mayid, which we refer to as festivals, comes from the Lashon HaPasek when Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu, Oilas Tamid L'Doyre Seichem Pesach Oil Mayed Asher Lefnei Hashem Asher Yivoid Lochem Shama L'Daber Eilecha Sham You shall bring the Tamid offering in front of the Oil Mayed. What was the Oil Mayed? The Tent of Meeting. What was done in this Tent of Meeting? Asher Yivoid Lochem Shama A Lashon of Hisva'ados Hashem tells Moshe Rabbeinu, There I will meet with you and speak with you and create a connection with Moshe Rabbeinu. All the Mayadim, the festivals of the year, we commemorate the revelation from Hashem, a nace that we experienced, Pesach, we left Mitzrayim, Shavuos, we received the Torah on Harsinai, Sukkot, Hashem protected us with the Anani covered, the clouds of glory throughout the in the Midbar, and through that day, through that miracle, we attach our ourselves to HaKadosh Baruch Hu through the Mayid, the Hisva'adus, the meeting. Similarly, Tisha B'av, although not in the form of joy and happiness of our other Mayadim, our festivals, but it too shares an aspect of Mayid, of Hisva'adus, a day of meeting and creating a connection with the Almighty. The Gemara in Chagiga brings the Pasuk in Yermio. The Imlaisish Mu'ua, the Mistarim Tivke Nafshi Mifne Geva, 
V'domoya sinma v'seirad enai dimo. Hashem says, if the Bnei Yisrael do not listen, b'mistarim tivkei nafshi, my soul will cry in its hidden chambers and its tears will flow freely. The Gemara explains that Hashem cries, but only in his inner chambers. And the Gemara asks, how can you say Hashem cries only inside? The Pasuk tells us, Hashem How Hashem calls out to us for a day of tears. And the Gemara answers that Pasuk is referring to the destruction of the Beis HaMikdosh. And for that, Hashem cries even outside His inner sanctum. On Tisha B'Av, Hashem calls out that today is a day for us to come join Him in His tears, His sadness, and His sackcloth. There are 21 days from Rosh Hashanah through Hashanah Rabbah. The Marsha tells us that these 21 days correspond to the 21 days that we just went through, the three weeks from Shavasar B'Tamuz until Tisha B'Av. Somehow, there's a, it's a remedy, it's a tikkun for the kilko, for the destruction, which we just went through these three weeks. In this calculation, the 22nd day, the day after Hashan Rabbah is Shemini Atzeres. So too, the three weeks from Shavasar B'Tamuz until Tisha B'Av, the 21 days only go through Ches of the 8th day of Av. The 22nd day is Tisha B'Av, is the 9th of Av. What was Shemini Atzeres? The famous parable given, imagine when the king marries off his one and only daughter and the whole kingdom comes to celebrate together with the king. For seven days there are celebrations with all the different provinces, all the different people of the kingdom. After the seven days are over, the king says to his daughter, before you leave me, I want one day with no one else. One day with just you and I to celebrate together. So too on Shemini Atzeres, after celebrating for seven days in Hashem's palace, the Sukkah, and including in the festivities all the 70 nations of the world through the 70 karbonas, the 70 sacrifices we bring, Hashem tells us, it's difficult to see you leave. Before you move out of my home, I want just one day to celebrate just me and my children. A day of nismach aniva ata, a day of rejoicing just between me and you. So too, on the flip side, we have Tishabov. Hashem calls to us to cry together with him. Tishabov is a day of Nivka Nivaato. Let us cry, me and my children, together. Shmini Atzeres, Nismach Aniva Atem Yachad. Let us rejoice. Tishabov. Nivke aniva atam yachad, let us cry. And just like Shmini Atzeres is the pinnacle of our attachment to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, through his Torah, through Simcha, through joy, so too Tishabov fosters an extremely deep connection, but not through Simcha, rather through tears. And that is the Mayid of Kara Olai Mayid, the Mayid of Tishabov the day where we have a special meeting with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. A day that has within it the potential to forge a deeper relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu than possible the rest of the year. During World War II, there was a Gera Chassid who was Nebuchadnezzar sent on the trains to Auschwitz 
together with his wife and children. When the train arrived, the Nazis immediately took his wife and his children and sent them to death in the gas chambers. After the selection process, those that remained alive were told to remove their clothing. They would be tattooed with a registration number, shaved of all hair, and then they would be disinfected. There was a large pool full of boiling chemicals that they were told to jump into. The chemicals would burn all over the body, get into their eyes. It was terribly, terribly painful. Everyone would jump in, dip, and immediately they would jump out. This Garachasa jumped in, and instead of immediately jumping out, he sat there for three seconds, five seconds, seven seconds, ten seconds. Then he dunked himself and left and went out. Listen to the unbelievable response he gave when asked why he stayed in so long. This Chassid said, when I was on the train here, I came with my wife, my children, the few belongings I had, and the clothing on my back. As soon as we arrived, they made the selection, and I watched as my wife and children were marched away to the gas chambers. Next, the few belongings that I had on me, they took it away. But still, I had the clothing on my back. Now, he says, they've taken away my clothing too. And I thought to myself, I have absolutely nothing left. And then I realized there is one thing I have left. And that is my relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And as I sat in those chemicals for those few extra seconds, I thought about I have nothing left besides Hashem. And then I dunked myself in this mikvah to purify myself before beginning this unique relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Fast forward a few years later to the Day of Liberation. This Gera Chassid, through his emuna and miracles from Hashem, survives the camp. As the dumbstruck survivors are slowly dragging what's left of their bodies out of this camp, the Chassid stops at the gate of the camp and starts to mumble. And the words of this Chassid, who just went through years of unimaginable tsaris and Yesurim, are utterly mind-blowing. As he stands under this gate, leaving Auschwitz, he turns to Hashem and says, For five years in the camp, I've been holding at the level of Yom Kippur Far Ne'ilah. When there was nothing left of me, I had nothing, I barely had a body. I lost my wife and children. I lost my friends. All possessions of mine were taken long ago, including the clothing off my back. I barely have anything. I have nothing left. All I had left was my relationship with you, Hashem. It was only you and me alone in the camps. Now I stand at the Shar, at the gate of the camp, hoping with your help to go rebuild my life again. I hope to get married again. I hope to have children to bring up in the ways of your Torah and to try again to build for myself a new life. And I am nervous that as I leave these gates to enter again into the outside world, our relationship will not be able to remain the same. So I beg of you, P'sach lanu shar, be'es ni'ilah shar. As we say every year at the end of ni'ilah, 
Open up your gates for us as the gates are closing, as the gates of Auschwitz close, as our relationship we experience in the camps ends. Psach lanushar, open up the gates for me, that even on the outside our relationship can stay as unique and as special as it was inside those gates. Here was a Yid who, in truth, it's hard for us to even begin to fathom the levels of Amunah he possessed. But he was a Yid who understood that in the darkest of times, when there was not even a glimmer of light, it was then that his relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu was at its deepest. Tishabov, the darkest of days, a day when unbelievable tsaris happened to our nation throughout our history, has within it the potential for a relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu that no other day of the year possesses. Imagine a mother who has an infant that Nebuchadnezzar is sick. And this baby has to go through many tests and operations and the baby is, baby is helpless. It does not even know what's wrong with it, what they are doing to it. But throughout it all, the mother is there holding that baby close to her. And the little baby is not even a yet aware yet of who this lady is. But the more helpless the baby gets, the more pain it goes through, the more tears it sheds, the closer the mother cradles that baby, holding on to that child, just wanting that baby to know that she is there. We are that baby. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu is like that mother. We are spiritually sick. We are distant. We are removed. We don't even know what's wrong with us. We don't know what we're missing by not having the Beis HaMikdash, by not having the Shekhinah HaKadosh, the Divine Presence living in our midst. But through it all, Hashem, like that mother holds on to us, and the further away we go, the more and more lost we get, Hashem brings us closer and closer, holding us tighter and not letting go. Kara alai mayid, Tishabov is the darkest day of that year, but in that darkness, as Hashem reaches out to hold on to us, it is our job to reciprocate and grab a hold of HaKadosh Baruch Hu and not let go. Like the Chassid in Auschwitz, who in the darkest of times imaginable for a human being to go through, somehow found a way to reach out and hold on to HaKadosh Baruch Hu on levels he was unable to before. When Yosef HaTzadik was sold by his brothers to a caravan of Yishmaelim, the Torah famously tells us they were carrying Nechais Utsrivaloit, good-smelling spices, which was not the norm for an Arab caravan as they usually carried foul-smelling cargo. And this was a source of comfort to Yosef, that although he's being brought down to Egypt, at least it's in a good-smelling wagon. On the surface, it seems a bit perplexing. Yosef was just sold by his brothers to an Arab, a group of Arabs traveling down to Mitzrayim. Yosef probably has thoughts that he's never going to see his father again. And these spices somehow comforted him. Yosef being sold to, down to Mitzrayim was the beginning of the descent of Bnei Yisrael into the Golis Mitzrayim, the long, bitter Egyptian exile an exile which all the exiles we've gone through since have mirrored that Egyptian exile. And while the Egyptian exile was obviously a terrible time in our nation's history, Chazal tell us that it was a necessity for the nation of Israel to go through. 
We went through a Korah Barzil, an iron crucible. The same way you put gold in a crucible to completely purify the gold, so too we as a nation went through a purification process to be able to receive the Torah and to enter into Eretz Yisrael. We had to go through Mitzrayim to be formed into a nation capable of receiving the Torah on Har Sinai. David HaMelech tells us in Tehillim, Shivtecha umishantecha heime yinachamuni. Your rod, your stick, umishantecha, the mission, they're both a source of comfort. A stick can be used for two things. It can be used to hit, a shavit, a rod. And it can also be used as a mission, a staff to support oneself. When a parent hits a child who runs into the street and then begins to comfort the child when the child begins, begins to cry, the parent shows the child that the hit too had a purpose. David HaMelech is teaching us this stick which serves a dual purpose, both to hit and to support. When Hashem turns the stick into a support, we realize that the hit too had, the, had a purpose. And both the shavit, the rod, and the staff, the mission, both of them are a source of comfort. There was a Hasidic Yid by the name of Remendel Futterfass who lived in the former Soviet Union and was caught secretly teaching Torah to young Jewish children. As a punishment, he was sent to the Siberian labor camps for 14 years. Remendel was asked how he survived these camps, and he said simply, I survived through my Amuna. From where did you get such Amuna? Remendel was known to have many different stories of chizik, of inspiration from the, from the labor camps, shared the following. Said there was a fellow in the camps with him who before being sent to these camps was a tightrope walker. One day this man walked onto one of the mountains, stuck a pole in, walked across the valley to the other mountain, stuck that second pole in and stretched across the rope creating for himself a tightrope. The man then walked to the edge of the, edge of the tightrope on the mountain, turned to the crowd, and said, should I walk across? And everyone, being nervous for him, said, no, you could kill yourself. At best, you'll break your bones if you fall. Don't do it. And promptly, he walks across. Then, as he, as he finishes walking across the first time, he again says, should I walk across again? And everyone says, it was enough seeing it once. And as they're arguing with him, telling him, we don't need to see it, he walks across the second time. Finishes walking across the second time, and he turns to the crowd and says, do you believe that I could walk across the third time? And they said, do we believe? We just saw you do it twice. Of course you could. He says, do you believe that I could do it? They say, yeah. He says, do you believe that I could walk across this rope with a wagon? They say, if you were able to walk across the rope twice so expertly, you could probably walk across it with a wagon as well. He says, do you believe I could do it? They said, yeah, we believe it. So he said, are any of you willing to come sit in that wagon? And slowly but surely, one by one, they all backed away. Until a little girl came running forward, I'll sit in the wagon. And the man run to her, what are you doing? It's dangerous, don't you know what could happen? And the little girl wouldn't budge. And the men who are in shock and don't understand what's going on, they say, don't you, aren't you afraid? Don't you know what could happen to you? One little slip and you could fall and that will be it. And the girl turns to the men and she says, the man holding the wagon is my father. In that same verse in Tehillim, David HaMelech tells us, Gam ki eilech Even when I walk in the shadow of death, I fear no evil. 
Kiata Imadi, because Hashem is with me. As Remendel explained, the girl can be on a tightrope between two mountains. But when her father is holding on, the, the girl was sure her father would do nothing that would possibly hurt her. We walk the tightrope of life, and sometimes we walk it in the dark when we have no idea where to place the next foot. But King David reminds us, Have no fear, Hashem is holding you tight. And that was the comfort that Yosef HaTzadik took in the spices. The good smelling spices showed Yosef that Hashem was with him. That his trip down to Mitzrayim also had a purpose. And smelling those spices, recognizing Hashem's presence, Yosef was comforting knowing he could walk into the heart of Mitzrayim and face what was coming, Kiata Imadi, because HaKadosh Baruch Hu was going down to Egypt together with him. When Yosef was sold and brought down, the Pasuk tells us, regarding Yaakov Avinu, Yaakov Yosef's father, how all his sons and his daughters got up to console him. But yet, he refused to be comforted. He had lost his Ben Zikunim, his favorite son, Yosef. For Yaakov, it was a tremendous blow. And he mourned over the loss of Yosef until they were again connected 22 years later. And the Pasuk continues, How Yaakov says, I will go to the grave mourning my son. And the Pasuk finishes, And his father cried over him. Rashi tells us, does not mean Yaakov cried over the loss of Yosef. But rather, it means Yitzchak, Yaakov's father. Yitzchak was the one crying. Yitzchak knew Yosef was alive and was unable to tell Yaakov. But yet, although he knew he was still alive, still the pasuk tells us, "By Yitzchak cried." Why did he cry? Says Rashi. Yitzchak cried because of the pain that his son Yaakov was going through. That little baby. When Rahman al-Tzan has to go in for an operation to save his life, or is being pricked by countless needles as they administer IVs, this infant has no idea that the surgery, the needles, the tests they're doing are for its own good. All this baby feels is the pain. But the mother who knows that the operation will save the child's life, the needles are for the good of the child, yet she still cries along with her child. Why does she cry? She cries for the pain that her precious baby is going through. We too as a nation have sat in gullus in pain for thousands of years. Operation after operation. Operations which we don't know the purpose of and only feel the pain. From pogroms to crusades, the Inquisition, the Holocaust, to anti-Semitism in countries too many to name. Do we as a nation know why, or do we only feel the pain? To the individual tsarists that our brothers and sisters go through on a daily basis, do young children know why their father was taken from them in the prime of his life, or do they only feel the pain? Can a parent understand when a child is taken from it, the parent only feels the pain? Today in New Jersey, there's a levaya for a two-year-old who drowned a few weeks ago in New Jersey.
Can we understand why? Or can we only feel the pain? We all know countless people who have gone through tsaris, which we have a hard time understanding. But HaKadosh Baruch will understand. Hashem knows the purpose, knows why it has to be done. And yet, our Father in Heaven cries because of the pain that His children are going through. But while right now, in the spiritual state we're in, it's very hard to see past the pain of a tzorah, there will come a time when we see how the shevet, the rod, the hit too, can be a source of comfort when the base Hamikdash is rebuilt. On March 6, 2008, Rosh Chodesh an Arab terrorist, walked into Yeshiva's Merkaz Arav and murdered eight Yeshiva boys. It was a tragedy which shook the nation. The Yeshiva published a Sefer Azikaran entitled Shmoina Nesiche Adam, Eight Princely Men. It's a beautiful Sefer, each page is filled with emotion laden words, and it contains one letter in particular that is very moving. The, mother, it is, the letter was written by the mother of Avram David Moses Hashem Nimkendamai. He was 16 years old and was one of the eight Kedoshim who died that night over his Gemara. She writes to her son the following, Avram David, sometimes I feel guilty for not feeling worse. Don't misunderstand me. I miss you terribly and I miss the effect your pure soul had in this world. Sometimes I fear I will cause you suffering by not grieving even more painfully. I know how much you love me. But as much as I still need you, you do not need me. Instead, as much as I can, the energy I could expend feeling bereft, I will channel into taking care of those precious souls that are entrusted to me. Thank you for being my son. I love you, Ima. P.S. I want to thank Hashem again for letting me be your mother. There is no gift greater than the gift of motherhood. With these words, this mother captures the unbearable pain but harsh reality of the Churban Abayas, her own personal Churban Abayas. Imagine for a moment trying to write such a letter to a child, but the mother accepts the din channels her energy and love into her other children. Chazal tell us, One who mourns over the destruction of Jerusalem merits to see it in its joy. But interestingly, Chazal do not use the words that one who mourns will merit and will see Jerusalem in its joy, but rather they use the present tense. One who mourns over Jerusalem merits and sees Yerushalayim in its joy. As we spoke earlier, Tishabov allows us such a connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu that the Avelos itself, if we mourn properly, allows us a feeling of what the connection will be like when the Beis HaMikdash will be rebuilt. The Shlach HaKadosh asks, why is it that when Tisha B'Av falls out on Shabbos like we had this year, why don't we fast on Shabbos? Why don't we fast just like we fast on Yom Kippur? 
The Gemara tells us, the Shlah answers that the Gemara tells us, that although there is a mitzvah to build the Beis HaMikdosh, we do not build the Beis HaMikdosh on Shabbos. Shabbos comes first. Says the Shlah HaKadosh, our Avelos, our tears on Tishabov is laying the foundation stone of the third Beis HaMikdosh. And just like we don't build the Beis HaMikdosh on Shabbos, our tears, our fasting, our sitting on the floor, which do build the Beis HaMikdosh, is not allowed to be done on Shabbos. Our tears are not just for the past and what we lost, but rather our tears go up to heaven and each tear is collected and laid as another brick for the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdosh until the point where the cup overflows with tears and Hashem lays that final brick. But where are, where are our tears? Does our generation know how to properly mourn? The Shlach HaKadosh wrote 400 years ago how his generation didn't know how to cry. As we spoke earlier, we're spiritually sick. We're distant from Hashem. We are removed. We stumble through the world and don't even realize how disconnected we are. We don't know what we're missing by not having Yerushalayim b'tefartu, Beis HaMikdash b'binyana, Yerushalayim in all its glory with the Beis HaMikdash as our home. We don't know what it means not to have the Shekhinah Daisha, the Divine Presence in our midst. There was a Yidat Tzadik by the name of Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, Rabbi Jacob Joseph, who the Yeshivas RJJ are named in his memory. Rabbi Yaakov Yosef was born in Kovna in the year 1840. He was a Rav in a few different cities in Europe, eventually becoming Rav in his own city, the city of Kovna. In the year 1888, the Jewish community of New York wanted to be united under a common religious authority. And although there were many Jews in New York at the time who ridiculed the idea the Orthodox Ashkenazi community sent a letter offering the post of chief rabbi throughout Eastern Europe. Rabbi Yaakov Yosef as well was offered the position. Although at first he hesitated to take the position, aware that the level of religion was nowhere close to what he was used to in Europe, eventually, after much thought, he accepted the challenge. Upon coming over, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef immediately got to work trying to institute his authentic European Judaism here in New York, and he was met immediately by tremendous opposition, both to himself and to his ancient ideas. They mocked him, harassed him, defamed him to the point where anti-religious Yiddish newspapers started spreading false and malicious rumors about his personal life. It got so bad that six years in, the association which originally hired him stopped paying his salary. At the time in New York, there was a group of Jews who never were so far away from God that every year Yom Kippur night, they would have what they called the Yom Kippur Bowl. This Yom Kippur Bowl was just the way it sounded. A bowl where everyone came dressed in their finest evening outfits. They ate tarfus, they drank alcohol, there was nice, wild music playing, and they danced the night, the night of Yom Kippur away. The group came up with another great idea to ridicule, to ridicule Rabbi Yaakov Yosef. 
At that time, in the early 1900s, as Shlomi mentioned earlier, there was a pogrom in the city of Kishinev, where a blood libel in the town led to the pogrom and to the deaths of 49 Jews, hundreds more injured, and over 1,000 homes destroyed. These Jews back in New York decided that on that year, they would make their bowl a fundraiser for the survivors of Kishinev. They would invite Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, knowing he couldn't come on Yom Kippur. And then they would spread the word around town how Rabbi Yaakov Yosef is heartless, how the chief rabbi of the Jewish people could not care less about the Jews in Kishinev. These Jews, they went about making their bowl as a fundraiser. They went to invite Rabbi Yaakov Yosef, and to their utter shock and disbelief, he said, you will have to wait until I finish davening in shul, but I will certainly come. Comes the night of Yom Kippur, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef finishes davening with his kittel and his talus, makes his way to the bowl, walks to the front and gets up to speak. Rabbi Yaakov Yosef shared the following story. He says in Europe at that time there was something called the traveling Malamed. A Malamed who would go from town to town teaching Torah to young Jewish children. Until eventually he would collect enough money to be able to go home to return to his family. Rabbi Yaakov Yosef explained how at that time in Europe the Talmidei Chachamim were greater than the Talmidei Chachamim that we, could, that we have today, but so too were the Amaratim. The religious, there were religious Jews who absolutely knew nothing. He says how one night the Malamed came to the house of the young boy he was staying at. In the middle of the night, the young boy wakes up and he hears cries coming from the Malamed's room. He goes to the room, knocks on the door, sees the Malamed sitting on the floor crying. He asks the Malamed, is everything okay? Can I help you? What's going on? And the Malamed says, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. He says, what are you doing then? He says, I'm saying tikkun chatzais. He says, what's tikkun chatzais? And the Malamed says, how it's something we say in the middle of the night as we mourn the destruction of the Beis HaMikdash. And the young boy says, what was the Beis HaMikdash? And he goes on to explain the glory and the beauty of the Beis HaMikdash and how special it was, and how Hashem lived amongst us, and how we had this Beis HaMikdosh, and now it's destroyed. And the boy becomes so emotional hearing all this, he too sits down on the floor and joins the Malamed in his tears. Sooner or later, the father wakes up and hears crying coming from this room, knocks on the door, and again, why are you crying? Is everything okay? He says, we're saying Tikkun Chatzais. What's Tikkun Chatzais? He says, we're mourning over the destruction of it. What's the Beis HaMikdosh? And again, the Malamed explains the beauty of the Beis HaMikdash, the glory, and how we had this Mikdash, this building, and now it's destroyed. And the father, too, becomes emotional, and he, too, joins, sits down on the floor, and begins to cry. It was a cold, bitter Russian night, and they slowly start to pass around the vodka to warm up. And they pass it around a few too many times, <coughs> until the three of them are drunk, and they, began, and they begin to start singing and dancing. Sooner or later, the wife wakes up from this noise, walks into the room, sees her husband, the chi her child, and this Malamed singing and dancing at 2 a.m. in the morning. And she turns to them and says, what's going on here? What are you doing? And they all begin to shout, what, don't you know there was a Beis HaMikdash? There was a beautiful Beis HaMikdash and it was destroyed. There was a Mikdash and it was destroyed. We're dancing because the Mikdash was destroyed. 
with a voice full of scorn, Rabbi Yaakov Yosef turned to this group of deeply assimilated Jews and thundered, there was a Kishinev and it was destroyed. Tanz Kinderlach, Tanz. Dance, children, dance. Dance the night away for the people in Kishinev. In previous generations, they knew how to mourn. They knew how to cry over the Beis HaMikdosh. They understood what they were missing. There were communities of Jews that when the month of Av came, you could not find the smile on the faces of the simplest Jews in town. Our generation, we don't even know how to cry. When the nine days when Rosh Chodeshev comes, we complain how it comes in the middle of the summer. We count down until we can resume our summer activities. Tisha B'Av is a day for many of us, a day simply, how can we get through it? Are we really building the Beis Hamikdash through our sitting on the floor and fasting on Tisha B'Av? Or are we too in our own way, dancing the night away for the people in Kishinev? And yet Chazal tell us, any generation which does not rebuild the Beis HaMikdash, it is as if that generation destroyed it. Generation after generation has not seen the Beis HaMikdash rebuilt, and yet our generation is supposed to rebuild it. Imagine that mother who has cared for that baby since the day it was born has done everything she possibly can for the baby. Imagine that baby comes out of an operation and the mother is holding on to that baby. And all the mother wants is a slight glimpse of recognition that the baby knows she's there. Imagine if the baby finally opens its eyes, looks up at its mother, and with the slightest look of recognition and the faintest of cries, cries out, Mama. Mama, imagine how that will melt the mother's heart and how at that moment the mother would do anything for that child. We are that baby. We are that child. We're confused. We are disconnected. And Hashem has been that mother holding us tight step by step throughout our long painful goals. All HaKadosh Baruch Hu wants from us is that slight glimpse of recognition that we know He is holding us. Imagine if for one moment on Tisha B'Av, we managed to look up to our Father in Heaven, and with the slightest look of recognition, and the faintest of cries, we cried out, Tata, Tata. That simple cry from the depths of our heart will surely go straight to Hashem's heart, to the point where He will desire such closeness that he will surely bring us back home to him with the rebuilding of the third base Amikdash, Bimhera of the Amenu Amen. Again, we thank everybody for participating today here at the New Springville Jewish Center in Staten Island, to the thousands listening across globe on the Nahum Siegel Network. We will have one more speaker with thoughts about Tisha B'Av, and then we will daven mincha. For you here in uh, New Springville, we will daven myriv at 
8.45 tonight. It is a great honor for us to have a Rosh Hashiva, tremendous Talmud Chochem, a very dear friend of the New Springville Jewish Center, Rabbi Raps, Rosh Hashiva, Yeshiva, Zichrein, Shraga, to address us at this time. I wanted to, um, I guess, in a certain way, to um, to continue um, what Mayor was talking about. I wanted to discuss today's Tishabov is to talk a discussion about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no good. Fine, fine. A discussion about what's going on in what happened on Tishabov. There were two basic things that are going on. One thing is the chet, the sin that the Jewish nation was responsible for, what they did wrong. And the second step is that how we were punished. So the question is to discuss what the, what the chet was, what we did wrong. And the second point is that how and the, in a specific way we were punished. There's interesting words of Chazal. Chazal writes something which is very, very hard to understand. It says that, Ato b'chisem b'chiyeshalchinam, it says that the Hashem said to the Bnei Yisrael, you cried a crying for nothing, and as a result of that, I'm going to cry, I'm, I'm going to instill that you're going to have to cry a b'chiyeladayrus, a crying for generations. What this means is that the, the Miraglim, the spies, had been sent out to go seek out Eretz Yisrael, to go find out, they were told that Eretz Yisrael was a great place, to go to, to live, coming out of, coming out of Mitzrayim, the Shiva Mitzrayim, they're supposed to go into Eretz Yisrael. After they go into, um, before they go in, they had this idea of having, uh, having spies check it out. The spies come back, and they say horrible, horrible things about the land. As a result of that, it was Tishabov when they came back, and that night they cried. And it says, because they cried, they all said, we don't want to go in, and that was the tragedy. So Hashem said, You cried a cry for nothing because there was no need because Eretz Yisrael was a wonderful place. But because you cried like that, I will establish that you'll cry forever, for generations. And that's what we experience on every Tishabov, the tragedies, the destruction of the base of Migdash, whatever happened in, during the war, the wars. And as a result of that, that's the B'chi of generations, the punishment of Klai Yisrael. It's a very, very hard thing to understand. That sounds like something that, unfortunately, we would do. It's called being vindictive. If somebody would do something to you, and, and we would go back and you would say, ah, you did that? I'll show you. I'll take care of that, and it's going to stay like that for you. So to think that HaKadosh Baruch Hu would do that, can't be. So the question is, what does it mean exactly? That HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, you cried because of that? Because of Eretz Yisrael? And as a result of that, I'll give you something really to cry about. What's, what did we do wrong in the crying, and what did we get punished by? There's a basic idea also which is a problem. Because why is it in terms of crying? What is crying? No, the reason is we defied going into Eretz Yisrael. We looked at Eretz Yisrael as being something which is not a good thing. So because of that, you, we cried. But it wasn't the point that we cried, theoretically. The point was that we just had a disdain for Eretz Yisrael, for the, holy, for, the holy, for the promised land. So what's the point that when the rabbis discuss it, that it's being said in terms of that we cried? 
we have to a little bit explain what, what does it mean to cry. What's the definition of crying? There's an amazing Gemara. The Gemara discusses what does it mean that the last few psukim, the last few verses of the Torah. It says in the last few psukim, we all know that the Torah came through Moshe. One of the, one of the last few psukim, sa- it says, Vayomus Moshe, Evan Hashem. That it says that Moshe, who was a servant of God, he had died. The kasha the Gemara deals with is, how could Moshe have wrote that? How could he... Torah is, is the reality of existence. It means that it can't be something that's just being said, something which is a poetic, it's this. But Torah is true sense of being. If it says Moshe died, how could a person who's alive write that? Because then it's not true, because he's not dead yet. So the Gemara says something very cryptic. The Gemara says that the last few psukim of the Torah were, were written by Dema. In, in Svarim it says, at an idea of Dema, for example, let me just give a, f- a frame of reference. You know that um, every, people, there's an awareness nowadays of what's called the Torah codes. The Torah codes is something that people are able to find within the Psukim of the Torah, a lot of, a lot of hidden mysteries that if you would just look at it in an open way, you wouldn't find it. It's based on, on numbers and how many letters from space to space. There's a lot going on in terms of beyond, the, obviously beyond the surface. But in terms of the letters, they were able to find out. The Torah being written, the Dema means that the last few psukim of the Torah were written in a, in a sense, in a way that it's not clear what it means. For example, the word Bereshis, Chazal teach us, Bereshis, we look at it, it means, it means Bereshis in the beginning. But Bereshis also could be Boreshis, that Akash Baruch created the, the, um, the, 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 the caverns under the, under the place of the Beis Amigdash. And the idea is that the, there are different things that can be implied in different words of, of, of what's going on in the Psukim. So when it was written Bedema, it means it was written in a mixture. That means you don't know what it's saying exactly. Only after the fact we're able to figure out what it meant. So it, it, it said the words that said Vayomas Moshe, but what the, it was written in, not Vayomas Vav Yud Mem Tov, and the next word would be Mem Shin Hei Vayomas Moshe, but it was written Vav Yud Mem Tov Mem Shin Hei together with the next letter, that you weren't exactly sure what it meant. So after the fact, when we found out that it meant Moshe died, then we understood that that's what the words meant. But Moshe was writing it without specifically writing V'yomus Moshe. That was one teretz. But there's a morale that says a different teretz. The morale's different teretz is that the word bedema means actually tears. That he wrote it crying. But it says he died. But the teretz is because death means a total cessation of existence. When one cries, it's not a total cessation, but it's a somewhat of a cessation. If I could mention openly, there's um, one of the speakers before, Shlomo Schwartz. I was by his grandfather's Leviah, and I remember, uh, what's his name? Not, not his, Friedman. Yeah, Friedman. Yes, right. Reuter Friedenson. He had, what he had said by that Leviah, he had said that Shlomo's grandfather was a Holocaust survivor. And he said at that Leviah, I'll never forget the line, he said that everybody died as a result of the Holocaust, as a result of World War II. Everybody died. Some died 100% because they went in the crematoriums. Some died 90%. Some died 70%. Some died 50%. So he was saying about his grandfather the level of death that he achieved because of what he went through in World War II. When a person cries, it's not level 100%, but there's a certain level of the person that is dying. 
when he cries. The sense of the feeling of, I am, it's nothingness. I'm totally broken. That sense of feeling of Dema is a segment, is an element of death. When the Torah writes that Moshe said, when he wrote in the Torah, Vayom Moshe, it's true. Because to a certain extent, Moshe did die. He didn't totally die, but there was a sense of his sense of being that died with those words because he was married to Moshe because he cried. So Bedema means tears. The idea of what tears means is a person considers that, he, that, that, he, that he's over and, he, and, it's, and his life ceases. The Vilna Gaon writes an unbelievable line. When a person cries, he sheds tears, demois. When, if you notice, when you look, when you look out and you try to see what's going on when you're crying, you can't see properly. Everything is distorted. Your whole sense of perception, your reality, is, is in a sense gone because of the tears. It blocks your ability to see straight. In a certain sense, your perception, your sense of reality, your sense of being is altered and changed and then sense ceases to exist. That's the form of death that occurs. The Gura writes also that the word Bechia comes from the word Nevuchim. Mer Nevuchim, the idea of being lost. Klai Yisrael was Nevuchim Heim Bamidba, Nevuchim Heim Baris, Klai Yisrael was, was lost in the desert. The idea of being lost means that a person doesn't understand how life can go on. There's no sense of hemshech, there's no sense of continuity. When the, when the Jewish nation, when they came, when the Miraglim, when the spies came back and they cried because of what occurred, their sense of crying was that the idea was they did not look at Eretz Yisrael, the place where they were supposed to go, as being part of their existence, that it was a positive aspect of their existence. They looked at it as being something which relates to their sense of death. When they saw Eretz Yisrael, when they were coming back and discussing about Eretz Yisrael, what they understood about it was, it wasn't a place where they could serve HaKadosh Baruch in the ideal way. What it represents is it's a place that will lend to further destruction. It creates a system where there is no future for us. The crying, the demise, the chet that they did was that they looked at Eretz Yisrael not as a hemshech, as a continuation of what HaKadosh Baruch Hu's will was for the destiny of the nation, but rather was something in, in relationship to their destruction. And as a result of that, they cried. So the chet was in the crying, because the crying was revealing the way they looked at Eretz Yisrael. It's a barometer of how they perceived it. But there's also another element in terms of what crying is. Everybody has gone through a certain step where you really wanted to understand and try to figure out what we are. Now, as everybody, you try to figure out, like, how sincere are we? Now, as we all go through different situations, and you always wonder, am I sincere, am I not sincere? Am I doing things because people look at me, people expect certain things from me? Like, what do I exactly know? So, an Adam Gull, a great person, once said that he had an idea. What he was going to do is, he was going to really see, like, he was going to go to a place where nobody's going to see him, and he's going to start functioning. He's going to start serving on Kodesh Baruch Hu when nobody sees him. He'll learn, and he'll daven, and he sees, he'll look over, like, for a day, and he'll look how he acts during the time when there's nobody looking at him, and he's only doing it, quote, for himself and Hashem. He's going to want to see how he does it. He's going to measure it. Is it, like, the, the level that he does all the time, or is it something that is only being done or, you know, it's being less because he doesn't have the people around him. So he goes there and he davens and he learns and he sees it's on the same level and the same magnitude that he feels all the time. And at one point then he feels like he says, okay, good, so I'm real, I'm legitimate. My connection to HaKadosh Baruch Hu is really something which is substantial. And then he said he was horrified. 
Because then he realized that how do I know that normally I'm davening, it's to impress maybe others. But maybe when I was davening and I was learning now, there were no others, so maybe the ones I was trying to convince was myself. And maybe I wanted to know what I am. So I did it that way in order to be able to walk away thinking that, oh, I am legitimate. And the, and the, and the illegitimate way he was doing it was to try to convince that he too was legitimate to himself. So the person said that that's not an Eitzah. So he had to figure out what another Eitzah is. Rebitzak Eizachovah was a Talmud of, a Talmud of the Vilna Goyen, of Anachem Endel Mishklov, and a Talmud of the Vilna Goyen. And Rebitzak Eizachovah writes an unbelievable thing. He writes, in Hebrew, the word for crying is called Bechi. It's crying. Beis Chof Yud. Beis Chof Yud is the Gematria 32. That's the Gematria of Lev, of heart. If a person wants to know what's in a person's heart, because again, who knows what's in our hearts? But if you really want to know what it is, you've got to see what you cry about. And when you cry, that means that's really what it is. There's no faking it. There's an interesting thing. I, have a, the, I was given a, a machzah by my father-in-law to use on Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. And in it, it's just, a, it's like, I just sold like a machzah, it has all the good stuff in it. But it's a very interesting thing. There's a line there. It's one line is, it says, B'Shem Da'ari, B'Shem Da'arizal, it says, you should try to cry on Yom Narayim. And I always, it always hit me as interesting. What do you mean you should exactly try to cry? If you cry, you don't cry. Like, what do you mean, like, you know, force yourself into crying? And then, I did, it's a very, very hard thing to be able to understand how you force yourself. If you moved, you moved. If you're not, unfortunately, you're not. But the idea is, in the crying is, because it reveals heart. And there's no faking in heart. If a person, when he sees a sunset, I guess it's a nice thing, and that brings you to tears. So that's truly something special. But okay, good, I don't know where it puts you spiritually. Maybe if in terms of what a Kodesh Baruch could do. But if a person sees spiritual people, if they see great things, so at that point you know what's going on in their life. There's a person I was actually to have to do with when I was younger. He runs now a community in Long Branch. He told me, he has a, um, he has a school in, uh, in, um, in Long Branch, it's called Ilan, it's a girls' school. For when they want to do, when they want to um, take them on a trip, in a 12th grade trip, they, they used to take them to Eretz Yisrael, but they still do. But when they took them on this trip, Rabbi Yashiv, the Colonel of Rachel, was alive. And the girls had never seen Rabbi Yashiv, they never met him. But what happened was, they were waiting there, Rabbi Yashiv used to give a shear, and then he used to go from the shear, he used to go to his house, he used to drive him with a, with a golf cart. So when he's going with the golf cart, you know, like he was driving up and he was presenting himself into, you know, to the front of the house. And all the girls were all waiting on, in front of the house. And at that point, when they had never seen him, but all of a sudden this Yid got out of the cart and he starts walking towards them. I was told by this person who brought them that he said that um, the moment they saw him, they all started to cry instantly. Because the pshat is, they weren't able to see the Kedusha of Yashiv and it wasn't Pile on their life. Because the pshat was, they were good kids, and the pshat is, he was Pile on their life. So Mamela, they had tears. But that's what tears are. So the pshat is, if a person, if we, if you want to know what we are, if that, whatever moves us, if that inspires us, so that's a good thing. That shows what's in our life. But when the Miraglim got, got Klai Yisrael to cry, which meant that they looked at Eretz Yisrael not as part of their existence, but part of their destruction, to the point that they cried, that is very, very, very bad.
because that means that that is their essence and that's what they are. And if that's the way they looked at Eretz Yisrael, that means that Eretz Yisrael is really not part of their existence. So if that's true, there's going to be a Chorban. So, You cried about that? Which means it's not part of your existence and it's from the death of your soul? You did that? I'm going to make it that you're going to cry. So the first, first half we understand. But what's the second half? And now, now you're going to cry. You're going to have to keep on crying. What does that mean? That sounds holy or vindictive. That's very, very strange. It cannot be. So what's pshat? There's an idea that the morale talks about many times. The morale writes that in the state of events, I'll give you, I remember as a kid, if you ever te- took a look, like I remember like when they're listing you know, things Friday night, it goes on Friday night. So we knew Friday night is Shabbos, Friday night and the next day. But why was like Friday night wasn't, but in the secular world, Saturday was Shabbos. Friday night is Friday night. What's this thing that the night starts where it, what happens? By the, everything starts by the nations after 12 o'clock. What's the idea of night? And the idea is that the Pasuk says, that there was night and then there was day the first day. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is establishing that the system of the universe is, first is darkness, and then comes the light of day. What does that mean? The Moral is Mavar. The Moral explains <coughs> that first is darkness and then comes light means that there's a system in the universe is that Shleim is something which is perfection, which means where God's input is going to be found can only be on something which is perceived as being imperfect. That means if a person looks at himself that I need something, at that point I'm willing to accept what HaKadosh Baruch Hu has to offer. HaKadosh Baruch Hu didn't create a world when it was light first. HaKadosh Baruch Hu first established a system where there was darkness. And the world was able to perceive there's no functioning going on. There is no world, there is no life. So then I'll be able to appreciate the aura of Yom, the light of day, and what HaKadosh Baruch Hu's input is happening. All system of events work like that. You see by a person there's a process of development, there's a process of growth, that's how life goes. There's an interesting idea. It says that, that when you plant a seed, the first process is that the seed has to rot. There's an interesting thing, people die. It's part of the state of the world. And what happens is that the person theoretically rots, and then we believe that there's when there'll be the, re- the resuscitation of the dead, and be able to, you know, be armed the din for netzach to receive reward, eternal reward. The Svarim they talk about burial as being to plant for tchiyas to put something into a ground, just like by a seed. When you put a seed into the ground, it first must rot before it could blossom. So too, a person, a person when a person dies, he's planted in the ground. For yet he rots. But then he's able to be able to be grow and to develop and to blossom to be worthy of Tchiyas HaMesim. In order for the seed to be able to grow beyond itself, it has to negate what it is and recognize it's a chasa. It's missing. There's an amazing idea. You know that in the system of events of the creation of Klai Yisrael, there are different levels. The first level of the, of the creation of Klai Yisrael was that there were three of us, Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, the patriarchs. The next step was that there were 12 Shvatim, the sons of Yaakov. That's the next degree of the creation. The third creation was that there were 70 nations, 70, um, 70 uh, how do you say, the Shivim Nefesh, the 70 souls that went down to Mitzrayim by, in the time of Yaakov. 
And from the next step, after the 70 souls that went down with Mitzrayim, the Shifim Nefesh, the next step was that there was a Klai Yisrael, which of 600,000, the Shishim Riboy. So it went from the 3, the 12, the 70, to the ultimate 600,000, which is the theoretical Shlemus of Klai Yisrael, perfected state of Klai Yisrael. The Swarm write an amazing thing. The Shiva Mitzrayim didn't start when they went down to Mitzrayim. The Chaymer, the severity of it, it didn't start when they went down to Mitzrayim. Because they went down to Mitzrayim, things were going whatever they were going as. It started, the Chaymer of the, 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 the intensity of the Shiva, of the servitude was, it started when, they, when the last of the 70 died. As long as there was somebody of the 70, of the, of the ones who went down to Mitzrayim alive, the next step couldn't take over because there was a state of Sudei Shleim, a Sudei state of perfection. And because there was that, Klai Yisrael themselves did not look at themselves as being a chaser, as being missing anything. So the next step couldn't develop. If the next step couldn't develop, there was no point of a Sheba, there was no point of, this, of, the, of being subjected to servitude. But once the last of the 70 died, so now Klai Yisrael was in a state of chaser. They were missing that step. And now they were primed to go to the next level of 600,000. And that's when the Shebet started. In order to grow, there has to be a riding of the state of, of Surah perfection to be able to go to the next level, the higher perfection. When the idea that Klai Yisrael was being told that when they went ahead and they, it was said, you cried, uh, crying for nothing, and I'll, I'll make it, that uh, I'll be establishing you a crying Ladiris, it, Halil, it's not an element of being vindictive. But what's happening is, HaKadosh Baruch Hu was, be, was putting into Klai Yisrael's system the ability to recognize that because of the lack of Eretz Yisrael, they were in a state of chaser. They were in a state of imperfection, of absolute imperfection. And for that, they had to learn how to cry. There's a, there's a Mesa with the Chavetz Chaim. The Chavetz Chaim, there was a, a, a very, very big year. His name was Ramesha Lindinsky. And he was a Talmud of the Nitziv from Tzi Yehuda Berlin, who was a major Rashiva in, in Europe. He came, and the Nitziv always was a smile for the Gula. He wanted a redemption to occur. But the Nitziv had died, and months later, still nothing had happened. There was no redemption, even though theoretically the Nitziv is now in heaven, and he's being able to affect what's going on in heaven. But nothing was happening. So this Ramesh Landinsky went to Chavetz Chaim, and he said, I don't understand. How come there was no Gula yet? What's going on? So Rechavetz Chaim told him over a Maisa, which is unreal. The, the, it happened with the Ramban. The Chavetz Chaim told him over a Maisa. He said the Ramban and one of his fellow people. Now Ramban was an Arishan, was from the early people, was an unbelievable person. The Ramban said, the Ramban made a deal with his friend that the first one of us that dies will go to Shemayim. And when he goes to Shemayim, he's going to find out why are things happening on earth? How could theoretically bad things be going on? I mean, what's the Cheshben in heaven? What are they doing? Why are they establishing things down here? And good, the other person died first. That was the Ashkocha. And the Ramban, is, the life is going on. And he's wondering. The person never came back in a dream to tell him what's going on in heaven. After months, finally, one day, one night, the person comes in a dream. The Ramban said, like, you told me you were going to come back early. That was the deal. So the Ramban was told by this Yid, who obviously must have been a giant himself. He said, I wasn't allowed to come back down in sh from Shemayim, from heaven, didn't allow to, me to come back until now to, be to tell you things. And then he said, and I'm not allowed to tell you what's going on in heaven. I'm not allowed to tell you. I'm in, it's been pro uh, prohibited me to tell you what's going on. But in Shemayim, they let me tell you one thing. And the one thing they tell me is, I'm allowed to tell you shot in the Pasuk. There's a Pasuk in Tillam. Pasuk is, is Perich Mem Ches Sif, sif um, Pasuk Ches. It Pasuk says the Minu Elikim, 
Chazdecha b'kerev echalecha. The person told the Ramban that I'm able to tell you that the definition of the words is we think you're the kim, but it's your chesed, your kindness in the midst of your sanctuary. So the Pasik that he's telling the Ramban and, I, and, the, and he said, in Shemayim, they translate the Pasik like this. Diminu elikim. That when we think these things happening, we assume it's din. The name, HaKadosh Baruch Hu has different names, and the names represent the way he relates to the world. The name of elikim is the word of, is the name of din, of strict justice. So diminu elikim. On earth, when we see things happening, we assume it's elikim. It's HaKadosh Baruch Hu being strict justice against us. But he was being, the Ramban was told, but no, no, no. In Shemayim, you, don't, you read the Pasuk, that the Minu Elikim, that which we think is, is Elikim, is Din, is, structure, is strict justice, is Chazdecha Bekeh Vechelecha. It's really your tremendous kindness in the midst of your Hechel. In your private sanctuary, what you're dealing is, you're dealing out kindness. That means in heaven, whatever is going on down here is being perceived as pure kindness. Because what, there is no, is no element of a stick. What's happening is, it's only there to cleanse. There is no sense of vindictiveness, vindictiveness, vindictiveness. There is no such thing. But what's occurring is, it's the establishment of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. What he's doing is to make Klai Yisrael in the system to recognize that we're a chaser, we're, we need and as something that we need, we're going to strive to go further. And to, and to recognize that our world cannot exist as it goes on. No, the fact that we're crying now, because we don't have a base of Migdash, because we have all the tragedies, we have all the Chobanis, is all a function of the base of Migdash. There was a Misa that's brought down on the bottom of the art scroll, in one of the notes, and on the Kinnis. And he writes about how, how Yermio was standing there crying before the base of Migdash. And then some, one of the philosophers of the day came over to him and said, what are you crying about? It's only a building. He said, so he started telling him tr great ideas. And the philosopher said, how do you understand these things? He said, I got it because of that building. And he said that any goodness that there is in the world is because of that building. And the, the, the goodness in the world and the majesty that exists in the universe is only because of that building. All the tragedies of Kalayasol is because of the destruction of that building. So when we realize that and we appreciate that, opposite the fact that they cried when they were supposed to go into Eretz Yisrael to establish such a building. So instead of that, to be able to go into a, into a system, to be able to, be, to recognize that we are chos and we are imperfect, absolutely because we don't have that building, is where it's at. The Maisenim, at the end of Marcus, is quoted many times. And it's in a situation where there were four great rabbis together. Rabbi Galil, Rabbi Lozman, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Yeshua, and Rabbi Lozman, and Rabbi Kiva. And Rabbi Kiva, was the person he saw, it says, they got to the base of Migdash, the Makkum of the, of, the, of the temple, and he saw a shul, he saw a fox coming out of it. And it says that the other was, everybody else was crying, and Rekiva was laughing. And they said, the other was were crying, and Rekiva, they asked him, like, I understand, we're crying, you're laughing. Why are you laughing? So he said, why are you crying? So he said, I'm crying, we're crying, because look what's going on. This was the holiest place in the universe, and now you have a fox coming out of it. Shabbat Kiva said, that's exactly why I'm crying. That's why I'm laughing. Because the fact that you could cry means that it hit bottom. So because it hit bottom means that, the, that Klai Yisrael recognizes that we have and we are nothing. And the only way is to recognize that, Abish, do you have to help? So at that point, when it did hit rock bottom, at that point when Shualim, foxes were able to go in, at that point, Rabbi Kiva said, so now I could laugh. 
because I could laugh to say because it did hit bottom. So now I'm batuach, now I'm insured that there's going to be clients who appreciate themselves as being chaser to be able to accept what HaKadosh Baruch Hu has to offer. Because of all the tears that Klai Yisrael cried because of not having the base of Megdash, that in a sense is the ticking, is the fixing of the fact that they originally cried because they, because they thought they were going into Eretz Yisrael. There's a, um, it says that um, by um, Rachel, it's Mavakal Banel, that Rachel cries on her about her children. And the idea that she cries on her children is, it's something which the, the Svarim talk about, why it's specifically about her. But the basic idea is that Akarish Baruch Hu is the Navi is telling her that hold back your tears. Hold back your voice from crying and your eyes from tears. Rachel, she was in a situation when a person cries, like we said, you can't see reality, but also you can't speak. When a person is choked up, with, with, he's choked up with sobbing, he can't talk. A person exists because he's a doer, he's a functioner. When a person is crying, he ceases legamri. Rachel is constantly crying. Rachel is understood that the chet that Klai Yisrael had done was that they cried against the Beis Amigdash and against the land. Rachel was crying the opposite way. Rachel is mavakal baneh for them to realize that we taka do need salvation. We need help. So the point is when the Madrega came and the Abish is saying back to Rachel, your crying did it. It's, again, there, it's very poetic, but that's not the point. The point is, it's in the words. Whatever the chet was in Bechia, and the tikkun happened in Bechia. So what her crying was pile, her crying did, was to establish that Klai Yisrael could once again recognize what truly completes them. And what truly completes them is the ability to be able to recognize that Eretz Yisrael, the Beis HaMikdash, and the ideal state of serving HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the ideal state of Klai Yisrael. The, um, in Mincha, you talk to say a line. You say um, in the Nachim, that's it in the, the Brach of Lushlayim. It says, Kiata Hashem be'eshi tzata u be'eshi ata asul of noisa. It was destroyed through fire. U be'eshi ata asul of noisa. And through fire itself, you'll build it. The Pshad is that there is no two separate things. There is no, there is no element that, well, this destroyed, and now, Baruch Hashem, we're finished with that, now we can go on and in a different vein. But just the opposite, because the Eish itself was the Eish that will rebuild it, and the Eish that destroyed, because there is, no, there is no evil that comes down from heaven. As the Ramban understood, what comes down from heaven is that the Eishter is doing things that have to be done, in order to get Klaus all into a position to be able to accept, to realize what they're missing to be willing to be makabal. Because if someone is not willing to be makabal, they cannot be makabal. And to the extent that ki eshata you destroyed it with esh, meaning through esh, that was the level of destruction. And that level itself, that Aish itself is going to rebuild it because once Klaus is able to understand that we have to be makabal from Hashem, that's the key because the the problem with the acceptance is not in terms of the giver, but only in terms of the receiver. The, when the Kodesh Baruch Hu was always willing to give, but now we're willing to accept. I just want to close with there's a line that it says, it's a very, very hard thing to understand. It says when the Babylonians came into the temple, into Vesa Migdash, 
they saw that um, the Kruvim, which represented the gold, I guess you would say, forms that were in front. In, in the Mishkan, they were on top of the covering of the Aron. But in the base of Migdash, they were in front of, of the Aron. But there were these gold forms, and one represented Klai Yisrael, one represented HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And what happened was, they, it, it really depicted their situation, their physical way they were s- set up, depicted the nation and HaKadosh Baruch Hu's relationship. Now, they were to be, the Gemara talks, but basically they were, they were created to be opposite one another. That meant that there's a bond between HaKadosh Baruch Hu and Klai Yisrael. When Klai Yisrael would be doing things which are inappropriate, Averis, so the, it would cause it to sway away, that they were mo- removed from each other. Miraculously, they were metal objects. They removed themselves from each other. And that was a symbol that they weren't doing, the nation wasn't doing what they were supposed to be doing. At one point, when they came, when the Babylonians came in to destroy the base, first base of Migdash, they came in and they saw that the Kruvim were Ma'urim Zebazet, they were embracing one another. All the commentaries ask, how could that be? If they, they, it was a time of Khurban, and the time of Khurban means it's a time of absolute destruction. So how could it be that the, the Kruvim, which represented the relationship with Hashem and the nation, that they were embracing one another. Theoretically, they should be opposite one another. How could it be they were embracing? And not only that, it's even says the Babylonians were showing it to, show, to represent some kind of a morality going on, and it ended up being a bizarre, as it being a, a, a embarrassing to cover up HaKadosh Baruch Hu. But the Svasemis writes an amazing thing. The Svasemis says, because at the moment of Khurban, that's when HaKadosh Baruch Hu showed his absolute and unbelievable love for the nation. It was his building. It was his cover that was being up for grabs. He should have theoretically destroyed the nation because they were sure that they were the ones that were responsible for the damage that they did. But he didn't because the nation he loves, and that's an eternal love. And whatever goes through is the chazdecha b'kerev v'chalecha that the Ramban was revealed. That whatever the Abish does is to establish that it's truly it's true, true chesed. So at the moment of Khurban, when there was absolute destruction, at that point, the Kruvim were matched up with embracing the other each other. That Akosh Baruch's ban with the nation was being established as firm and eternal. And what's just going on is not a simple temporary glitch, but that's really what it was. And it's our job to recognize what we lost, to cry about it and bring the words of Rachel to fruition of Nihi Kailach Nebechi. As we conclude, we want to thank ZK for his tremendous job in producing everything here this morning. We again thank Rabbi Sonnenshine, Shloyma Schwartz, Rabbi Shafaskowitz, Mayor Simchasigal, and Rabbaren Raps for their inspiring words. We're going to take five minutes now to reset the shul. We thank everybody for coming. There are over a thousand people listening or watching on the Nachum Siegel Network, and we thank them. And in Mirza Hashem, next year we should all be in your shul.